All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are ready to begin. I'm delighted to see all of y'all. Uh, as some of you know, it is a particularly auspicious occasion because today is the 125th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's birth. And it is the, yes. And it is also the day appointed in the Anglican Church um, to commemorate C.S. Lewis. So it is highly appropriate that we have class tonight uh, because that is a great thing to do. Uh, we are going to have a special activity for that in a moment. Uh, and the other thing that is auspicious about today is that some of you who are also Lord of the Rings fans may know that there has been a uh, worldwide event for over a decade that's called Tolkien Reading Day. And libraries and schools and individuals and societies and all sorts of groups have different events where they are highlighting Tolkien's works on that particular day. And there has never been a C.S. Lewis reading day until today. So our friends at the Pints with Jack podcast, which is a really terrific Lewis podcast, uh, are having the first ever International C.S. Lewis Reading Day, and we are going to participate in that uh, in a minute, so I'll tell you about that uh, in just a moment. But before all of that, why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day, and we do thank you on this 125th anniversary of his birth for C.S. Lewis and for the great impact that he has had on the lives and spiritual life of so very many people. Lord, we thank you for his legacy and pray that you would continue to give favor to his work, that it would continue to have an impact for your kingdom. We pray your blessing on our time together tonight. We pray that you would help us to put aside whatever else we may have been distracted with during the day and that you would help us to focus in on what you might desire for us to learn this evening. Lord, we pray that you would use this time to help make us more and more like Jesus. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. So we have slightly unusual music tonight, and we will see if anyone knows what this is. If you're of a certain age, you might know this. what that is. Who knows who the artist is? The Who. Yes, does anybody know what the song is? Oh, come on, y'all. <laughs> of the Who. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Remember that line? Okay, well, I'll just have to tell you, um, it is a song called Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who, and it is really interesting. If you look at the lyrics of that song and read this chapter, chapter seven of The Last Battle, it almost makes you wonder whether Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend were reading The Last Battle when they wrote the lyrics for that song because it could have been lifted right out of there. And the dwarfs in chapter seven one of their lines is, we won't get fooled again. So 
I couldn't resist. So it's a little change from King's College, Cambridge, but sometimes it's good for us. So uh, let's say our verse together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So a couple of things as we um, get ready to jump in. Uh, if you are new, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you're here if you're new in person or new out in podcast land. Um, there are a couple of ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you do as little as possible. Um, perhaps sleep through class. That's totally fine if that's all you want to do. Or you can snorkel, paying attention to the parts you like, or you can scuba dive. So, for example, tonight uh, there is a, I think, 16-page handout uh, by Dallas Willard, who is a great Christian writer and professor of philosophy that is on the nature of truth. And it is really, really wonderful. But if you're more in it for the unicorn, um, you might not want to dive into all that. But there's no shame about any of that. Um, email list. If you are not on the email list uh, and you are here in person, please sign up. Uh, if you are out uh, in podcast land, please Google St. Philip's Church, Charleston, United States, and we should come up. And then you can email me and ask me to add you to the list, and we'll get that done. So uh, the special announcement has to do with C.S. Lewis Reading Day, and we are actually going to participate in C.S. Lewis Reading Day uh, by taking a video of our class uh, reading something together. And uh, Juliana Morehouse is very kindly consented to be our videographer for this. So what I'm going to do is put a quotation up in just a minute from The Last Battle, uh, and I'm going to ask y'all to read that out loud, uh, every starting with the first word on the slide going to the last word. Uh, one part of it does say further up and further in. You want to be especially loud on that part. So... Um, one of the things that's great is uh, Pints with Jack is very excited about uploading this onto their official uh, CSO's Reading Day site. So uh, we will all have our moment of fame um, from that. So if y'all want to go ahead and stand. And as we say uh, to our grandchildren, this is something where you can use your outside voice. So we want to read robustly. So here we go. In honor of C.S. Lewis Reading Day 2023, a reading from Lewis's The Last Battle, chapter 15, by the Wednesday evening C.S. Lewis class at St. Philip's Church, Charleston, South Carolina. It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound away among mountains. 
And in the wall of that room, opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you have never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right fork off on the ground and neighed. And then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Nardia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Bree hee hee, come further up, come further in. Happy C.S. Lewis reading day to y'all with special thanks to the Pints with Jack folks. All right, y'all killed it. Good job. So I'll send you the link to that so you can see yourself in action. So um, we're going to jump back into the book. And as we've said before, part of the reason that this book is such a work of genius is that it's simultaneously operating on three levels. It is a marvelous capstone work to all of the children's books in the Chronicles of Narnia series that works great for children that are 8 to 12 years old. It is also a profound reflection on the sin of Eden, on the means of grace and the glory of heaven. And it is also a parable about following Jesus that seems particularly applicable in 21st century America, especially with the concepts of word and truth. So chapter three, remember we started with the ape and its glory, the ape holding court and declaring that he is a man. He is not an ape. He insists on being addressed as a man, uh, even though it's obvious to everyone that he's not. And then we move into chapter four, where Tyrion, the rightful king of Narnia, uh, has surrendered because he feels bad for having done something dishonorable. And so the ape has him tied to a tree, and he is miserable and helpless and there's this beautiful scene of all of the animals of Narnia coming to minister to him, to tell him that they love him, to work out very ingenious ways of animal engineering to get cups of tea and wine and food up to his lips. And then Tyrion cries out to Aslan. He's just out in the middle of this wood by himself, crying out for help, wondering if anyone is hearing and he has this vision where 
he sees these children that he thinks maybe are the ones who have come to rescue in the past. And he's so excited that Aslan has granted his prayer and he's all ready to speak to them and beg them to come help. And then he finds he is unable to speak. And then as soon as he starts trying to speak, the vision fades away and he's plunged into despair and hopelessness. But the next chapter when he wakes up in the morning tied to the tree, stiff, cold, damp from dew, all of a sudden he's shocked to see the youngest boy and girl from his vision plop down on the ground right in front of him. And he's probably a little bit disappointed that it's the little boy and the little girl rather than some of the adults, uh, but he's very excited and then he realizes that Jill and Eustace are some of the great heroes of Narnian history. So they free Tyrion, they escape, uh, and they put on armor and disguises. And then in chapter six, they practice their archery and sword fighting skills, and they go back to Stable Hill to rescue Jewel the Unicorn, who is Tyrion's closest friend and like his brother. And interestingly, they make Jill, this little girl, the pathfinder, on whom the whole responsibility of success or failure depends on her being able to figure out the best way to get there. And they get to Stable Hill, they carry out the plan, they free Jewel, but meanwhile, Jill disappears and they're terribly worried she's been captured, but what she's actually done is to sneak into the stable where Aslan uh, lives, where they pull Aslan out a couple of times a week, to say things and then stick him back in there. And she goes in and she discovers the falsehood that the ape has been perpetrating, that it's this poor donkey named Puzzle with a lion skin on him. And Puzzle is none too happy about being cooped up in the stable, so he's happy to be liberated. So they come back out and they've got Puzzle, they've got Jewel, and so things are starting to look up, except that Tyrion is ready to kill Puzzle because of this uh, false Aslan business, but Jill stands up and says, no, 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 it's not his fault. The ape is the one that's responsible for all of this. So there were a bunch of themes that we looked at last week, taking care of those who are in your charge, honestly assessing the gifts of those who are in your fellowship, making a priority of aiding your friends, letting gifts and skills rather than stereotypes dictate roles in the quest, planning wisely, allowing for success or failure, standing up for truth, and then laughter and good news making the soul glad. So that brings us to chapter seven with the great title mainly about dwarfs. So Tyrion and company encounter a group of dwarfs who are being marched off in captivity by the Calermines to go work literally in the salt mines, which sounds pretty terrible. They are marching off into slavery. And Tyrion reveals Puzzle and the lion skin to the dwarfs as he liberates them from their Calermine captors. So they're free. They're no longer being marched off to slavery. And now Tyrion shows them that all of these terrible things that they've heard about Aslan, for example, that it was Aslan's command that they be sold into slavery, that all of that is fake and not true, that it's fake news, if you will, 
And it is the ape that has tricked them and that this donkey with the lion skin is what they have been so afraid of. And so Tyrion fully expects that the dwarfs are going to be overjoyed about this news and at seeing the truth revealed and knowing that they don't have to go into slavery and that all those evil things that they heard about Aslan are not true and that the real Aslan is still what they had always believed. And so Tyrion tries to lead a cheer, three cheers for Aslan, and the dwarfs don't respond and it just peters out. And so what he discovers is that rather than rejoice at the news and committing to serving the true Aslan by fighting back against the ape and the Calamines, the dwarfs instead choose to be cynical and to disbelieve. And Tyrion is just completely shocked by this. And they're really rude and ugly to the ones who just liberated them from being sold off into slavery in the salt mines they basically say, well, we don't really know who you are. Why should we trust you? We've heard enough of all this Aslan business. We don't want to hear any more about Aslan from anyone. And why don't you just shut up and let us go our own way? The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And they march away. And Tyrion and Jill and Eustace are just absolutely shocked. They can't even believe it. And Tyrion's whole plan now is melting away because he had thought that by having this fake news exposed by having the lion skin and the donkey, that now everyone would rally to his side, but it's clear that that's not happening. So they are really, really discouraged. But as they start walking off, one loyal Narnian dwarf, they hear this pitter-patter of feet in the dark, and they turn around, and there's this one dwarf running up saying, sire, sire. And Pagan the dwarf makes his way back to join Tyrion. And he is a true Narnian who wants to serve Aslan. And he's delighted to be with them and takes the battle on uh, with them. But he also shares new information about the plots of the enemy. And it turns out that the enemy is not just the ape but that the ape is now being directed, if you will, by Ginger the cat and Rishda Tarkhan, who is a leader of the Calamines. So there are a number of themes that we're going to try to get to tonight. Uh, the first one is that clear evidence of the truth may fail to convince skeptics whose hearts are hardened. And this is part of the reason this handout is here because it talks a lot about this sort of thing. And this is something that we see a lot in our culture. The second theme, kindness and sacrifice, may be met with indifference rather than gratitude. Cynicism and self-centeredness can blind people to the truth. The physical presence of a friend in time of trial is a more important comfort than mere words. One convert who sees the truth can bring great joy and encouragement. Lies can take on a life of their own and become the dominant narrative, changing people's behavior as a result. And then unbelief and self-interest lead to regarding other creatures not as sacred, but as only means to an end. So 
clear evidence of the truth may fail to convince skeptics whose hearts are hardened. Look, said Tyrion, pulling Puzzle forward into the light, it has all been a lie. Aslan has not come to Narnia at all. You have been cheated by the ape. This is the thing he brought out of the stable to show you. Look at it. What the dwarfs saw, now that they could see it close, was certainly enough to make them wonder how they had ever been taken in. The lion skin had gotten pretty untidy already during Puzzle's long imprisonment in the stable, and it had been knocked crooked during his journey through the dark wood. Most of it was in a big lump on one shoulder. The head, besides being pushed sidewise, had gotten somehow very far back so that anyone could now see his silly, gentle donkey face gazing out of it. This is my password, said the king as he drew his sword. The light is dawning. The lie is broken. Now guard thee, miscreant, for I am Tyrion of Narnia. That's what he says when he's getting ready to execute the Calamine captors. Now, dwarfs, you are free. Tomorrow I will lead you to free all Narnia. Three cheers for Aslan. But the result which followed was simply wretched. There was a feeble attempt from a few dwarfs, about five, which died away all at once. From several others, there were sulky growls. Many said nothing at all. Don't they understand, said Joel impatiently. What's wrong with all you dwarfs? Don't you hear what the king says? It's all over. The ape isn't going to rule Narnia any longer. Everyone can go back to ordinary life. You can have fun again. Aren't you glad? Well, said the black dwarf, whose name was Griffel, I don't know how all you chaps feel, but I feel I've heard as much about Aslan as I want to for the rest of my life. That's right, that's right, growled the other dwarfs. It's all a trick, all a blooming trick. What do you mean, said Tyrion? He had not been pale when he was fighting, but he was pale now. He had thought this was going to be a beautiful moment, but it was turning out more like a bad dream. You must think we're blooming soft in the head, that you must, said Griffel. We've been taken in once, and now you expect us to be taken in again the next time? We've no more use for stories about Aslan. See, look at him, an old moke with long ears. So this is uh, discouraging, to say the least. But we should not be surprised because this is what Scripture tells us often is going to happen when the truth is shown. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then that famous passage from Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And then from Proverbs, an honest witness does not deceive, but a false witness pours out lies. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. 
But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. So the scriptures are very clear that truth is something that is not always going to be held in high regard, and that a lot of people are misled by the spirit of the age, by the gods of this world, to really be fully invested in things that are lies. And even when they are shown the truth, demonstrably and with evidence in front of them, they will just say, well, I don't care. And that is very much where we find ourselves uh, in our culture today. One of the things that's interesting for those of you who may study trends in apologetics, that is uh, how to share your faith in a way that is appealing to people, is that in the 70s and 80s, most of the emphasis was on needing to convince people with rational argument about evidence, that people didn't understand that the scriptures were actually reliable, they didn't understand that Jesus really existed, um, they didn't understand a lot of factual sort of evidentiary-based things. But since around the year 2005, there's been this big shift where now a lot of times people say, well, I see all that, and it might be true, but I don't care. It doesn't matter to me whether it's true, because we now live in a country and in a culture in the Western world that says there's no such thing as truth. So you have my truth, your truth, and what usually happens is someone will say, well, that's good. That's true for you. It's just not true for me. But the problem is the revelation of Scripture teaches the opposite of that, that there is revealed truth, that God is the source of all truth, and that his truth is immutable, unchangeable, and is the only thing that has power to transform people's lives. So, continuing on this depressing trend, uh, kindness and sacrifice may be met with indifference rather than gratitude. You keep a civil tongue in your head, mister, replied the dwarf. I don't think we want any more kings, if you are Tyrion, which you don't look like him, no more than we want any Aslans. We're going to look after ourselves from now on and touch our caps to nobody, see? That's right, said the other dwarfs. We're on our own now. No more Aslan, no more kings, no more silly stories about other worlds. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And they began to fall into their places and to get ready for marching back to wherever they had come from. Little beast, said Eustace, aren't you even going to say thank you for being saved from the salt mines? Oh, we know all about that, said Gruffle over his shoulder. You wanted to make use of us. That's why you rescued us. You're playing some game of your own. Come on, you chaps. And the dwarfs struck up the queer little marching song, which goes with the drumbeat, and off they tramped into the darkness. So think of this. They were literally on their way to spend the rest of their life in slavery under the Calermines, who had a huge reputation for cruelty, and they've been liberated miraculously, and yet 
they don't really seem to be the least tiny bit grateful. They think maybe they deserved to be liberated and that these other people need to now just get out of their way so they can self-actualize. So, some scripture. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. And then that famous story of Jesus cleansing the lepers. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And then again from Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And the sad thing is that is the way many people live. They live lives where they do not ever express gratitude and either they complain about their lot or if something good happens, they think, well, I earned that, I deserved it, I don't need to thank anyone for it. And this is absolutely 180 degrees opposite from the attitude that is commended in scripture. In scripture, we are told over and over again to give thanks to give thanks with a grateful heart, to give thanks without ceasing, to give thanks in every circumstance. I mean, there are literally hundreds of verses about giving thanks. And the thing that I love about this, that's just the irony of the way the world works, is that there has been all of this stuff in the um, news over the past probably six to eight years about all this research about gratitude, and that gratitude is like really good for you as if no one had ever figured out that it might be a good practice. And that you can transform your life through gratitude, that it changes your perception about reality. It changes and makes your relationships with other people healthy. It's just like there was an article last year uh, in a magazine that is not known for endorsing Christian viewpoints, let's just say that, um, that was recommending monogamy uh, <laughs> because it works better. So it's just funny when the world sort of catches up on some of these things. But what Lewis is showing us here is that indifference and cynicism are really dangerous. And it's very easy, even if you're a Christian, when you live in a culture that's hostile to your way of thinking, it is easy to become cynical. We're just cynical about different things. And Lewis in the Screwtape Letters says that Cynicism makes the hardest and thickest armor for the Holy Spirit to penetrate. That it is one of the most dangerous of sins because you dismiss everything. You can't enjoy anything. You always have to look for the angle or the thing you can make fun of. And what you see here, does it appear to you that these dwarfs are full of joy? No, they're not full of joy at all. And what we're going to see is that they're going to continue to be part of the storyline that uh, weaves in and out of the rest of this book. So thirdly, following up, cynicism and self-centeredness can blind people to the truth. We've been taken in once and now you expect us to be taken in again the next minute? We've no more use for stories about Aslan, see Look at him, an old moke with long ears. By heaven, you make me mad, said Tyrion. 
Which of us said that was Aslan? That is the ape's imitation of the real Aslan. Can't you understand? And you've got a better imitation, I suppose, said Griffel. No, thanks. We've been fooled once, and we're not going to be fooled again. Just like the who. We're not going to be fooled again. I have not, said Tyrion angrily. I serve the real Aslan. Where is he? Who is he? Show him to us, said several dwarfs. Do you think I keep him in my wallet, fools, said Tyrion? Who am I that I could make Aslan appear at my bidding? He's not a tame lion. The moment those words were out of his mouth, he realized he'd made a false move. The dwarfs at once began repeating, not a tame lion, not a tame lion, in jeering sing-song. Sing That's what the other lot kept on telling us, said one. Because you'll remember that the ape said, Aslan's not a tame lion. Every time he would do something that people said, Aslan would never do that. And the ape would say, well, he's not a tame lion. I can't help it. He can do what he wants to. Do you mean you don't believe in the real Aslan, said Jill? But I've seen him, and he sent us to here out of a different world. Ah, said Griffel with a broad smile. So you say, they've taught you your stuff all right, saying your lessons, ain't you? So the cynicism and self-centeredness, they're not even open to the possibility that it might be true. Their minds are absolutely closed. And it is sad how often you can encounter that same situation in our culture. So some scripture, lots in Proverbs about this. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That is from Psalm 1. If you haven't read Psalm 1 in a while, I would commend that to you. It is a great psalm to meditate on. And then Jesus' words, when he's looking out over Jerusalem and wanting to gather all of the people to him like a hen gathers her chicks, and he says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. I.e., no matter what you do, it's not good enough, and it's not going to move us. And then the Israelites, there's a great veggie tale version of this, uh, Joshua and the peas or something like that. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And in the VeggieTale version, the little asparagus at this point pipes up and says, but we were in slavery. <laughs> How soon we forget. And then moving on to Hebrews. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
And part of what we can see from this scripture is that this is a problem that is as old as humanity. We may feel like we live in the most cynical, scoffing, scornful age that there has ever been, but the fact of the matter is, this goes way back. It is part of the human condition. It is part of original sin. And it's part of the reason that we so desperately need a savior and need a redeemer, and why we so desperately need to have our eyes opened to be able to perceive the truth. Because it's easy when you hear this story and you think about if you were Tyrion, your first reaction would be anger. Anger, how can these people be so stupid? It's so obvious what's going on. Not that any of us have ever said anything like that. But the point that Lewis is going to make is you're going to see through the story, and this is just a little preview, we're going to see that Lucy always calls them back to not hate the dwarfs or to be furious with them, but to have deep pity on their blindness. And there's an important lesson for us in that as well. A little more hopeful thing here. The physical presence of a friend in time of trial can be a more important comfort than mere words. So after this whole interaction, um, they are very, very depressed. And this is before Pagan has come back. They were a silent party. Puzzle felt himself to be still in disgrace. And also, he didn't really quite understand what had happened. Tyrion and Jewel walked sadly together in the rear. The king had his arm on the unicorn's shoulder, and sometimes the unicorn nuzzled the king's cheek with his soft nose. They did not try to comfort one another with words. It wasn't very easy to think of anything to say that would be comforting. Tyrion had never dreamed that one of the results of an ape setting up a false Aslan would be to stop people from believing in the real one. He had felt quite sure that the dwarfs would rally to his side the moment he showed them how they had been deceived. And then next night, he would have led them to Stable Hill and shown puzzle to all the creatures, and everyone would have turned against the ape, and perhaps after a scuffle with the Calermines, the whole thing would have been over. But now it seemed he could count on nothing. But what you see here is that in the midst of this despair, Lewis giving us this beautiful image of these two deeply devoted friends who have experienced the same loss, the same tragedy, if you will, the same despair, rather than retreating into aloneness, staying together, showing affection to one another, communicating non-verbally that they are in this together and they are um, committed to one another. And this is something that particularly in our isolated age is so very important. We are now, because of technology, very easy when someone is in trouble to default to maybe sending a text or something like that, whereas probably 100 years ago, people would have gone in person to go sit with that person. And one of the things that I love about um, Jewish tradition, uh, when someone dies, 
or in the Irish tradition of a wake is that everybody goes and they just sit with the family. And there's not necessarily an expectation that you're going to give advice or that you're going to say, oh, it's all going to be fine because it's not all fine. But you are there together and you are saying non-verbally, I am with you in this. And this is a profoundly Christian concept because when you think about, and we're gonna hear a lot about this as we move through the season of Advent, when you think about the incarnation, that is exactly what God is doing. He is not taking an airplane and dropping leaflets about the truth of God over all of the different countries of the world. He is taking on flesh and entering into our world to be with us. Emmanuel means God with us. And when Jesus calls us to follow him and to be like him, what that means is that we need to be with one another in a way that is far more costly than most of us think. Listen to some of these familiar passages from Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's not God's words comforting him. It's God's presence with him. And then from 2 Corinthians, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And then from the Gospel of John, Jesus speaking to his disciples. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And then Job, Job is such a great book to read on this very thing, because it is full of the bad advice of friends. Friends who are well-meaning, and they actually, they do come and be with Job, but they don't come to just sit with him. They come to say, Job, I've been meaning to tell you, buddy, you're a sinner. And if you hadn't screwed up this thing that I noticed and I know how to fix, you wouldn't be in this mess. So just do what I say, one, two, three, and all of a sudden it's all going to be better, except it never works. And so friend after friend comes and then some of them repeat visit and none of their advice works. And finally, when you get to the end of Job, um, God says to the friends that he is angry with them because they have not spoken truth about him as Job has. And then there is uh, this great verse. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So many of us, when we have a friend that is walking through a time of trial, we feel that we need to solve the problem uh, we feel that we need to give advice. We feel that we need to have the right thing to say in the circumstance. But I would really encourage you to think about what we can learn from the scriptures here about the power of presence, the power of incarnation, um, being like Jesus, of going and being with people. And even if you are brilliant and have great things to say of great spiritual counsel, most people won't remember a word that you said. They will remember that you came and you were with them. So that is something that as the church, 
we need to practice. And then one convert who sees the truth can bring great joy and encouragement. And this is an important thing when you live in a culture that often measures spiritual success by great numbers that happen. But the important thing is to remember each convert, each person that comes to the truth, that is a soul infinitely precious in the sight of God and that there is rejoicing when that one person moves from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And we need to learn to be better about celebrating the one, celebrating these things when someone moves closer to Jesus. Sure enough, there was a thump, thump of small feet behind them. Who goes there, shouted the king. Only me, sire, came a voice. Me, Pagan the dwarf. I've only just managed to get away from the others. I'm on your side, sire, and on Aslan's. If you can put a dwarfish sword in my fist, I'd gladly strike a blow on the right side before all's done. Everyone crowded round him and welcomed him and praised him and slapped him on the back. Of course, one single dwarf could not make a very great difference, but it was somehow very cheering to have even one. The whole party brightened up. So some scripture. I tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. And then Paul's letters are very tender about this concept. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And again, some more about Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And we don't often think of St. Paul rejoicing in the one, or even the idea that St. Paul might have been lonely and needed encouragement from the one. But you see in these verses that side of Paul of being grateful for that one who is ministering to him. And then even Jesus on the cross, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is a great reminder to be alert to the one, to not just be thinking about groups of people or, oh, it's terrible, only one person came to Bible study. You know, whatever it might be, God is at work and we need to be looking how to be encouraged and to be encouragers in those situations. Then lies can take on a life of their own and become the dominant narrative, changing behavior as a result. So Pagan is giving them some inside information here. Tyrion asked, what tale do they tell of my escape? As cunning a tale, Cyrus, was ever devised, said Pagan. It was the cat, Ginger, who told it, and most likely made it up, too. 
This ginger sire, oh, he's a sly boots if ever a cat was, said he was walking past the tree to which those villains bound your majesty. And he said, saving your reverence, that you were howling and swearing and cursing Aslan. Language I wouldn't like to repeat were the words he used, looking ever so prim and proper, you know, the way a cat can do when it pleases. And then, says Ginger, Aslan himself suddenly appeared in a flash of lightning and swallowed your majesty up at one mouthful. All the beasts trembled at this story, and some fainted right away. And of course, the ape followed it up. There, he says, see what Aslan does to those who don't respect him? Let that be a warning to you all. And the poor creatures wailed and whined and said, it will, it will, so that in the upshot, your majesty's escape has not set them thinking whether you still have loyal friends to aid you, but only made them more afraid and more obedient to the ape. What devilish policy, said Tyrion. And this is exactly why Satan is called the father of lies. Because when people believe a lie, it affects their behavior. And they begin to act as if the lie is the truth. And when that happens, everything gets turned upside down. And scripture, again, is very clear about this. There are six things the Lord hates. If you hear something that the Lord hates, that is pretty strong language. Seven that are detestable to come. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Then from John, Jesus speaking, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then from Romans, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then Jesus talking about the Pharisees. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. And this is a great reminder of how important the truth is. How important it is to speak the truth. How important it is to try to know what the actual truth is, which is not always so easy these days in current events. Uh, you have to work hard to figure out what the truth actually is, but you have to also work hard not to be deceived. And the easiest way to be deceived is to think that what you're hearing, what you, to hear what you want to hear, to have already decided what you want to believe about somebody or something, and to just look for ways to back that up. It's sort of like doing Dr. Google. Um, if you have convinced yourself that you have got... Uh, COVID, for example, and then you go and look on the internet about all of the symptoms of COVID, I will guarantee you within about five minutes, you'll start thinking, I do have a little bit of a cough. Yeah. It's the power of the suggestion of the narrative. And it is really easy to be deceived and to get hung up in these lies. But again, we have to be careful 
to realize, and the scripture is clear about this, that the people have been taken captive by these lies. It's one of the reasons I love that hymn, O Church Arise, because it has that line that says that our job is to free the captive soul, to love them, but to rage against the captor. And that is exactly right. All right, and then unbelief and self-interest lead to regarding other creatures as only means to an end. And this is something that is rife in our culture right now, that we dismiss people who are made in the image of God, made by God with gifts that he desires to be used in his kingdom. And then they're swept up in these false narratives and deceived by sin. And we can begin to see them as just like pawns that can be used. And this whole idea, for those of you that were in the That Hideous Strength class, that's exactly what was going on in that book, Dehumanizing. The whole idea of the title of C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, is to say people don't matter. There's no value to a human soul. There's no value to a human being. There's no value to a life. And that we can, with impunity, make choices about what to do with those people or these people um, if it accomplishes an end that we think is good. So here's a little dialogue we're going to listen in on. And these two were Ginger the cat and Rish de Tarkhan, as they call him. Noble Tarkhan, said the cat in that silky voice of his, I just wanted to know exactly what we both meant today about Aslan meaning no more than Tash. Now remember, Tash is the evil, cruel, detestable god of the Calormenes. Doubtless, most sagacious of cats, says the other, you have perceived my meaning. You mean, says Ginger, that there's no such person as either. All who are enlightened know that, said the Tarkhan. Then we can understand one another, purrs the cat. Do you, like me, grow a little weary of the ape? A stupid, greedy brute, says the other, but we must use him for the present. Thou and I must provide for all things in secret and make the ape do our will. And it would be better, wouldn't it, said Ginger, to let some of the more enlightened Narnians into our councils, one by one as we find them apt. For the beast who really believe in Aslan may turn at any moment and will if the ape's folly betrays his secret. But those who care neither for Tash nor Aslan, but have only an eye to their own profit, and such reward as the Tisrock may give them when Narnia is a Calormene province, will be firm. Excellent cat, said the captain, but choose which ones carefully. Well, remember what we just read from Proverbs about um, hands that shed innocent blood and feet that are quick to rush into wicked schemes and all of that? Well, that's exactly what we have happening here. We have the cat and the Tarkhan agreeing that 
There's no such thing as Aslan. There's no such thing as Tash. And the only thing that matters is getting ahead, and particularly getting ahead materially, getting more money and power for yourself. And if you can use all of these other people to help do that, so much the better. But notice there's one group of people that they say are utterly unsafe. The people who are utterly unsafe that they want to avoid are the beasts who really believe in Aslan because they can't be corrupted. The beasts who really believe in Aslan know what the truth is, and they will not fall prey to these evil schemes. So part of what we see here is this whole idea of unbelief being untethered from any kind of moral compass, any kind of revealed standard of truth, leaves purely to self-interest. And again, that's exactly what's going on in the abolition of man and that hideous strength. And what Lewis says is that when, when truth is abolished, power is the only thing that is left. And so trying to figure out how to get power over others is the only game in town. So some scripture on the other side of this. Do nothing, that's pretty strong, nothing, that's a very big, inclusive word, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then from Colossians, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And then from James, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And then an admonition to church leaders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And part of what we see in scripture here is the profound other-centeredness of the Christian faith. If you've been in church lately, you've been hearing a lot about the great commandment because it runs through all these parables uh, in Matthew 24 and 25 that we've been studying. But the great commandment, of course, is love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it is uh, like that old acronym that you might have gotten taught in Sunday school, that God's will for your priorities is joy. Jesus, others, yourself. That you put Jesus first and others second in your own needs and desires at the bottom. But I would say that we live in a culture that has turned joy to yaj, uh, where yourself is very much the first letter. And for a lot of people, that's the only letter. It's just a Y. Um, it's just yourself. Occasionally, you might care about others if you can get something out of them. And then Jesus is not even on the radar. But this is part of the way that the, the light of Christians can shine in a dark culture. Because when we live according to what these scriptures say, where we take care for other people, where we're interested in them, um, we want to hear their story, 
uh, we want to pray with them, uh, we ask what we can do to help, that is shocking to people now. It is just not something that really happens. And I think that's one of the reasons that we, one of the sort of strange things that has been an unintentional byproduct of Theology on Tap is we have a number of bar and wait staff and bouncers from Henry's who are now coming to St. Philip's on various occasions because they were just shocked that people at this church thing at their bar would talk to them and be interested in them other than for what they could get from them. So that is something that is super encouraging, but it's just a reminder that even as we're busy and about ourselves, we need to look for who the people God is putting in our path, people that are right in front of us, because each one of those people is someone who is made in the image of God and infinitely precious to him. And where if we take a little bit of our time to show concern and care, there's no telling what the Lord might do with that. So with that, um, we are out of time. Let me close us with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the joy of the truth of your word and the truth of your gospel. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to wonder about ultimate truth because it is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from cynicism. We pray that you would deliver us from anger and judgment uh, of people who have been caught captive by the lies of the enemy. We pray that you would fire our hearts of compassion and that you would give us the ability to seek to love others as you first loved us. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you again for the gift of C.S. Lewis on this, his birthday. We pray your blessing as we go from this place. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.